Benefits and Value SIG and Program Management SIG ask the question, what makes programs successful and believe it's a combination focusing a program on the benefits and value to be realized. We've got together a panel, let's discuss some of the thought in that area. I'd like to introduce the panel. Hello, my name is Mark Fulton. Um, I'm a chartered civil engineer and P3M professional. I have uh, 30 years plus experience across the full life cycle of major infrastructure capital projects from policy through to repurposing of time expired assets. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been working as an independent uh, supporting private and public sector clients uh, through interim leadership, consulting and advisory roles. Hi, I'm James Taylor. I've worked in operational roles within multinational enterprises in Europe, North America and the Far East. And for the last 20 years, I've been undertaking sponsor, project and programme manager roles within the UK transport sector leading on the introduction of infrastructure and business change. I'm John Thorpe. Uh, I have close to 60 years global experience in information management field. Uh, my passion resolves around helping individuals, organizations and society realize value from information technology enabled change. Really, realizing this value requires going beyond frameworks and methodologies. It requires a fundamental mind shift around organizational governance, leadership and management. My prime motivation has always been to make a difference, and I hope that collectively we can do so. Hi, I'm Helen Winter. I specialise in shaping large programmes of work on transformational programmes. I help companies start projects safely. Uh, I'm also author of the Business Analysis Handbook, published with Kogan Page. It's been a finalist uh, in two major industry awards. That's about me. And I'm Hugo Minnie. I'm the same as everyone else present. I'm a volunteer for a professional association, as well as the co-chairing of the Benefits and Value Specific Interest Group. I'm on the committee for the Northeast of England branch and active within the Nuclear Project Management Specific Interest Group. My role in this panel is to ask searching questions and our experts will explain what we're examining, some initial thoughts and invite you, our audience, to contribute further. Before looking at programme success, let's first look at a definition of what a programme is. And using the MSP definition, a programme is a temporary flexible organisation created to coordinate, direct and oversee the implementation of a set of related projects and activities in order to deliver outcomes and benefits related to the organisation's strategic objectives. And they typically have a lifespan of several years. So programmes are a combination of projects and other activities to create a change in the way things are done. A change in business operations, a change in the community, or may even be a change in the general landscape. And we use programmes to provide an umbrella under which these projects and activities can be coordinated within a controlled environment of effective direction, management and delivery and reporting mechanisms. And it's widely, widely considered that a programme management approach that provides this structured framework will help organisations to achieve their goals. Can you explain how uh, programmes fit within the context of portfolios, programmes and, and projects? Because it's very misleading to, to talk about it, the project. Programme management, along with project management and portfolio management, which are sometimes referred to as P3M, are actually quite different and yet completely interdependent. One can't be successful without the other, and yet we tend to marginalise them in, in the way we look at them. <clears throat> Portfolio management, together with strategy management and, and governance, actually, is a board and executive responsibility. It involves objective selection of investments to maximise enterprise value, 
based on both attractiveness and achievability. And it requires ongoing oversight and adjustment of the portfolio based on performance and business context. Without effective portfolio management, there's really no, other, no context for the other two Ps. We can, do, we can do programs and projects brilliantly, but if they, don't, if they are not aligned with the value of the organization, they're just a waste of time. We can do them worse, we can do them badly, and that's worse. But if we're not aligned with the strategy and the vision and the values of the organization, we're just wasting our time and wasting money. Um, Program management, today's topic, is a business leadership responsibility. It involves the management of all projects and other activities that may be required, as, as James said, to make the changes necessary to realize the expected benefits from the projects and, and initiatives. Project management is a management activity involving management of budget, schedule, and resources to deliver required capabilities that are necessary but not individually sufficient to realize the benefits. Without all the other projects and activities required, there's simply a cost. Success, which is the question, is when the right programs are selected based on their relative value to the organization and successfully executed such that the expected value is created and sustained. And I want to note here that the understanding of success may change during program execution, either as more information is known or as the business changes. I think John's, John previously has referred to, um, I think he calls them the four R's, um, which is essentially it's about getting the basics right. Um, so I think in terms of, of any undertaking, whether it's a program or a project or a portfolio, there's a real need to, to get the basics right. So in the context of the, the, the four R's, um, so the four acid tests, if, if you like, are, um, are we doing the right things? Uh, are we doing them the right way? Are we doing them well? And are we realizing the benefits? Um, and a key thing that is we, uh, because delivering or developing, delivering programs is a team thing. Um, and the various players in the team need to be, you know, playing their roles um, appropriately and, and properly in order to to get the best out of the opportunity that presents itself. It's always useful to remember that whilst all improvement requires change, not all change leads to improvement. Can you uh, talk a little bit about improvement in terms of the objectives and the benefits? There are any number of keys to um to supporting successful change and I previously referred to getting the um, getting the, the the basics right um, th there's a, a, a real need to to start a program with the end in mind and what that means is um, rather than just start off doing stuff you you have a, a reason for doing your program and the program basically is aligned with strategic objectives which is under, underpinned by um, benefits uh, and outcomes and then backwards from that, it's a case of what capability do we need to deliver those outcomes and outputs and, and benefits, and what projects do we need to design to do that? So in MSP, it would be sort of driven by the V, v, v diagram. Um, I mean, other methodologies have a slightly different approach, but the MSP approach sort of approaches it um, that way. The reason for doing a program is the case that says the value is greater than the cost taking into account the risks and the likelihood of success. I, I think that's right. But, that, you know, some programs are not actually just done on cost benefits. They're, they're, they could be done on compliance or they could be done on some, for some other reason. But whichever way you, you do it, you know, applying that benefits-led approach is probably the, the cleanest way of making sure that you're doing, you know, delivering against the, the four R's. So we've discussed quite a lot about what is program success. I'd like to explore why are so few programs successful? 
Yes, certainly. Uh, there was an article I read recently that I thought really well summarised this, and actually some of the results were a little bit different to what I, um, what you might expect. So the Harvard Business Review conducted a study on why so many programmes failed, and actually they got asked to list people to list the reasons for failure. Um, only twenty three percent cited insufficient budget and 17% insufficient time. And what was interesting was the participants ranked um, far higher. Um, I think poor communication was 62%. Um, insufficient leadership and support was 54%. Organisational politics was 50%. Lack of understanding of the purpose of the change was 50%. Lack of user buy-in was 42%. And lack of collaboration was 40%. These were seen as the most critical issues. So what's really interesting about this is is these are all human problems. Um, So it got to me thinking about, um, you know, what are the types of things that that could be done to help? And one of the things that kind of struck me was around um, the business case that's done at the beginning. I can I can think of a few examples where the business case has been seen as more of a tick box exercise to get the um, budget and then hasn't been looked at. Whereas what I was thinking was, was that um, if you actually review the business case, you do plenty of occasions where I think people regularly track against the the budget regularly track against time. But how often do people go back and look at the business case and track against the benefits? Um, so it, it seems to me that some of those sort of human factors um, would kind of really help with that. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with you. I'm going to talk a bit more about the business case, but I, I think it's about it is. You say it's about people. It's all about people. You know, <laughs> I mean, people are everywhere here. But I, why does it happen? I, I think to start with, th- th- there's a failure to acknowledge complexity. You know, we think we think project, but really programs are very complex. They deal with things that aren't really even projects. You're changing culture. You're changing all sorts of aspects of the business. So it's very complex. All too often, they're focused on and driven by technology and technologists. And that's not, well, I'd say that's not because they won't let the, the, anyone else do it. But in fact, it is in many cases because they don't think the executives know what they're doing. So they're just going to do it anyway, um, which, is, which has been a bit of a problem. I've, I've, I've asked teams, why don't you go and talk to executives? Well, they don't know what they want. We're just going to do it, is what they've told me. Um, there's limited, and, for, and that leads to there's limited or no senior business ownership and accountability. And, and I'll focus on this for a minute because I, it doesn't matter how good our project managers are, how good our program managers are, if the executive doesn't take ownership of this stuff, if they don't take time to determine what they actually need, why they need it, how they're going to measure it and have oversight of it, it's not going to be successful. We'll keep a bunch of people busy, but it's not going to be successful. John, do you um, think they know that there's a problem? Um, I suspect they, they know it's a problem and they don't want to tackle it. But I, 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 that would be presumptuous. But I, they just don't have the attention span to do what they need to do. And, uh, and, the, and the other part of this is there's, limited, there's very limited or no business stakeholder involvement or buy-in. It's done to people, not with them. Whenever I got involved in a program, I would, I would first of all, interview, I, I'd go around and interview, find out who were all the stakeholders. And I'd make sure that the team comprised someone from all of those stakeholders. And, it, and if they had people working for them, they had to go back and explain to them what we were doing and come back and tell us what they thought. 
So we needed to, not only does the leadership need to lead, they need to listen to the people who are going to be the victims of this thing going down the road, because they actually know what needs to be done. And we don't do that. Woefully inadequate business cases, to go to your point. I mean, the business case is, is, a, is a, a lie at the best. We call it a lie in most cases, most sort of things. It's just made up to get the money, too many cases. Um, there's a term someone used, I, I, I should attribute it, but it's based on delusional optimism and strategic misrepresentation. Now, strategic misre misrepresentation is a shorter word for that, it's called lying. <clears throat> um, you lie to get the money. There's limited or no clarity of the outcomes uh, in, in most business cases. There's limited or no understanding of the scope, the depth and breadth of change required. There's a failure to balance attractiveness with achievability, including organizational change capacity and project and program management capabilities. It might be great to do, but can we do it? And there's limited or no relevant metrics, both lead and lag metrics. And if you're familiar with that term, the lead metric is, okay, you've got the score on the board. The lag metrics are, did we make the plays along the field to get the score on the board? And failure to manage the journey. Basically, the, once the business case is approved, it's parked, no one ever comes back and looks at it. They go into the next business case until they have to come back and audit why the previous one didn't work. Uh, and failure to manage the benefits. Benefits don't just happen. They have to be managed. And they just, they're not, act, they have to be actively managed. There's, there's sort of three strands I've put into that. And that is, it, it's, it's very helpful to have a program baseline that you can measure performance against um, historically, but also forecasting um, such that you can put plans in place to make sure that you, 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 you cope with change and, um, and embed it into your future plans. The second thing is around performance management and you, you need to be, um, I've identified what you're going to be measuring and then, then do something with the variance um, and hold to account where you need to hold to account, learn where you need to learn. And the third thing is about organizational governance. And it's about having um, clarity as to what the key roles and responsibilities are and making sure that the people who are appointed to those roles are actually competent to do the role. So in the rail sector and any number of other sectors they talk about that squept people suitably qualified and experienced people i mean you quite often find that people are shoehorned into roles particularly senior roles where they, they don't really have the experience or the background but they get shoehorned into the role and unfortunately what can happen is um they aren't supported and and what's uh also worse is 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 nobody ever gets held to account so you know, there's no improvement um, and, and there's an awful lot of waste. So, I mean, this sort of plays to, to John's comment. I don't think you said unconsciously incompetent, but quite often that's something that you, you, you come across. And there's no maliciousness in it. I mean, it, it's a complex environment. It's not easy. Um, and the complexity isn't necessarily understood. Um, very often, or quite common, quite often, it's it's um, the complexity is not realised, and and people think, well, I can do a program, I can do a portfolio, I can do a project, and they they don't really know what those three disciplines are and how they they fit. So, no, I would just I would just add that I think a lot of people see a program as just a big project. And yeah. it's, not, it's a totally different animal and they, and they just don't understand it. And a lot of people become program managers to get accreditation so they get paid more, but they're still just managing projects. And it's a very different business managing a program.
managing a program means you have to manage the executive. <laughs> and well, also you- it manages it involves managing the whole end-to-end piece. I've been on programs where they've just said, well, ours is a business side, IT can have a difference, uh, is different, and they don't take into account that they still need IT to deliver to be successful, but they're kind of just throw it over a wall and wash the hands of it. So it's where you end up with silos and that kind of spells disaster as well, I think. I was just going to add, um, regarding the amount of information that programmes typically have at their disposal and why don't they realise when things aren't going the way that they should and picking up on Ellen's point about the human factors, the, the benefits and value of SIG have done a really interesting piece of research that um, included a, a sort of discussion around the fact that um, the failure of benefits realisation is more to do with how people think than their actual intelligence. And it's interesting how very often there are intelligent people working on benefits realisation, but they don't necessarily always uh, apply the theory of benefits management proportionally to this, the programme that they're working on. Um, they don't get that sort of pragmatic approach right, they're, they're perhaps too theoretical. And with the sort of volatile and uncertain, complex and ambiguous world that we're living in, these sort of programmes, they're live in a live environment and programme managers need to be adaptable to change uh, and to be able to sort of react in this complex environment. And I think that's where governance is really important, to be able to hold people to account and challenge groupthink so that problems can be identified early and, and then the right data can be used to to address and correct the program and get it back on course. So we've talked about executives, we've talked about governance, we've talked about program managers, um, projects and portfolios. Who are the key people who make programs successful or unsuccessful? Well, you, you know what I'm going to say. It's going to start with the leadership. I mean, yeah. it doesn't start there. It doesn't happen. And uh, I was listening to some of the things here. I mean, I... I I remember having a lunch with a president of a company where they were implementing something like SAP, some disastrous thing anyway, and it wasn't going very well. He said, oh, I know that, but I'm hoping it'll be okay. Well, actually, hope is not a method, you know. And I said, you know, I don't think you'll be here very long. I didn't quite say that. I thought that. but And he's gone a year later. And part of the reason is people don't want to tell the boss bad news because he doesn't want to hear it. And so you've got to open up the lines of communication. But I think uh, I, I, I read uh, Joe Peppard, a buddy of mine at MIT, sent, uh, sent me the latest, um, what's that, NAO, National Accounting Office report, uh, which I always like reading because they're always the same every year, <clears throat> rather like my, my slides. But I, there was a piece in it I wanted to read to you. It said, despite 25 years of government strategies and countless attempts to deliver digital business change successfully, our reports show a consistent pattern of underperformance. This underperformance can often be the result of programs not being sufficiently thought through before key decisions on technology solutions are made. This means that there is a gap between what government intends to achieve and what it delivers to citizens and service users, which wastes taxpayers' money and delays, oops, set one page, and delays improvements to public service. If government is to improve its track record in delivering digital business change, it must learn the hard-won lessons of experience and equip its leaders to act effectively. And the keys to success here are, you know, we, we need, and it's been mentioned by, by Helen, we need clear and, and defined, appropriate and accepted sponsorship. 
you can be appointed. You, you say they don't appoint the right people, but those people don't accept that the fact they're accountable either. And they're not held accountable. So it's a game. It's a game. Um, you need active sponsorship. I mentioned before, you need identification and active involvement of all the stakeholders. You don't do this to people, you do it with them. And it makes a huge difference when you do that. <clears throat> you need, again, to help us put effective business cases. I mean, most business cases are seen as a, a bureaucratic hurdle to be overcome and then forgotten. Um, they're the most, they're the foundation and the seeds for success. They need to go beyond individual projects to include realization of value from those investments. They need to focus on managing the journey as well as achieving the outcomes. They need to ensure there's relevant appropriate measurements and they need to be used as a living operational management tool. We need categorization. I think people, are, people are think, oh my God, everything we do, we've got to go through all this rigor. No, you don't because some things you just have to do. Some things are, some things are mandated. You know, all investments are not considered are not equal. Some things are mandated. Some things are just uh, reducing costs versus at risk. You can do those things without going quite so much of that. But though, when you're doing more things or doing different things or doing things more, then they need to you need to do them differently. <clears throat> and you need to do, I think, one of the most powerful tools for building business cases and getting understanding is, is benefits of value mapping. And Hugo could talk to that. I could talk to that. Most of us probably could. It's an amazingly powerful tool for getting the right people in the room, having the right discussion to get clarity about what they're trying to do, what it's going to take and, and how they're going to do it. And what it gets, it gets the assumptions onto the table. And the things that kill you in these things are assumptions. <clears throat> so when you get the assumption on the table, you can take action to deal with that assumption. And the worst, and maybe the worst is at least to, to have it as a risk that you're now going to manage. But sometimes you can get rid of it if you do different things. So that has to happen. So there, there are many tools available to do this better, but that won't happen until the leadership requires it needs to be done better and play their role in doing so. Benefits mapping is a perfect example of if you can't explain something simply, then you probably don't understand it yourself. Yeah. It gets it clear, makes it clear, and it highlights how much people do understand and, and how much they actually have different understandings from each other. It, it also has another benefit in that it, I mean, quite often when I've run a workshop with all the stakeholders, I've had to introduce them to each other. They didn't know each other, but once they go through this exercise, they understand each other, they know each other, and they start working as a team together on this thing. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing the difference it can make. Mark, would you like to talk about the role of the program manager and the business change manager? The starting position, it's a team thing. You've got a sponsoring group, a sponsor, You've got a program board with um, the SRO sits on, and then you've got two key roles. You've got the program manager and the business change manager. The program manager is focused on, on orchestrating change, setting up the program, getting the governance in place, and uh, driving forward what needs to be driven through through whatever methodology they're using. MSP is, is the one that I use. And the business change manager um, picks up the detail of, of the benefits uh, the benefits mapping, um, the benefits planning, the, the benefits realization, doing the pre-transition, transition, post-transition post activity to a point whereby um, the realization activity can then be handed on and embedded into the business or whatever, depending on the timeline of the, of the individual project. Um, they're both heavyweight roles. 
quite often, unfortunately, what happens is the business business change manager is not included within the organization because it's not seen to be needed. But it it's a key, absolutely a key role. And the, and the, the business change managers typically are a specialist skill set in benefits management, um, probably better than the, the program manager. And they're um, better positioned to engage with the operational business and make sure that the, the business change actually gets properly designed and gets taken through. How much impact do you think they have on project success? Are they key people? I mean, the, the BCM and the, the, the program manager and the SRO are really the, the, key, the key people. Um, I mean, different organizations do or don't include a, a PMO type organization. And if you look at the program being uh, existing on it, on its own, um, you hopefully you'd have the competence within the, the program to be able to exist without a PMO. PMOs are very good when you've got a situation where you've got multiple programs, multiple projects, or alternatively where you're using them as a, a center of excellence in a very big program. Uh, but BCMs are key, program managers are key. They need to be suitably qualified and experienced people um, if, you, if you're expecting them to actually deliver against what it says in the business case. I think we get tied up in, 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 in titles and roles. Um, yeah. And, and that, you can do some of this in big companies, but you can't. But you need to understand the things that need to be done. And the mm -hmm. things that need to be done are the same. Who does them will depend on the nature of the organization and the size yeah. of the organization, whatever. But those things have to be done, maybe done by one person in a small organization, but mm -hmm. they have to have it in their head that that stuff has to be done. And certainly in the public sector, I don't know if it's changed now, but when I was doing proposals, we would always put in a big change management piece and, the, and procurement always got rid of it because they didn't see it was needed. James, you were going to talk about some of the challenges that these these um, roles face. I think a lot of project man program managers naturally evolve uh, from an experience working within projects, but they, they definitely need to be able to realise the, the different focus as a program manager um, to be able to keep sort of multiple work streams and activities going on all fronts is important. Um, and trying to move away from what might be a, a pet project based on sort of previous knowledge and experience. Uh, they need to be able to look at that sort of bigger picture so that they're not sort of stuck in the detail and be confident of dealing with, with ambiguity. But I think more than anything, having that clear picture of the target operating model and how they're going to use change management and communication plans to deliver it. I think communication, managing the stakeholders, working with the sponsor, the things that sort of John and Mark and Helen have both sort of said are so important. And I think from a, the perspective of the business change manager, I just think it's so important that there's somebody in a, any organisation that can actually influence change at the operational level. So if the programme's delivering the, the capabilities, they've got the influence and the seniority to actually embed and, and sort of realise the benefits from that capability. So the challenge I often see is that program leadership teams define their own objectives. They get the business case passed, they get their money, and they then say, right, this is what we're going to do. And it may or may not have all that much of a connection uh, with the original objectives and the original planned benefits. Is this a failure of, of leadership or is this a failure of uh, sponsor accountability or is it simply bringing in the sponsor too late quite, in the day so the sponsor doesn't own it? I would put another spin on that. I, I would say that 
I, as a, I think it's a project, a, when a program manager is asked to do something, if, as I, as a consultant, my first job thing would be to sit down with the sponsor and say, explain to me why you, why you want to do this and what the outcomes you expect. And I would say that nine times out of 10, those outcomes were not what he wanted and he was not going to get it from what was going to happen. So program managers have to be comfortable enough to challenge what they're being asked to do. That's the flip side of them saying, we're not going to listen. We're just going to do what we think needs to be done. So, but I think there's twofold program, two parts of that. Don't take, don't take what you're being told to do as necessarily right. You need to have a conversation to validate that, but also don't just take off and do stuff on yourself, yourself because you think they don't know it. That don't do it if you don't think they know it because you're not going to succeed. Yes, I think that's a very sensible response. If we've identified a number of challenges, which are human factors, what are some of the ways that we can overcome some of these challenges? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, again, the point that John's made um, throughout regarding sort of relationships and, and communicating well as a program manager, that is, is so important. And I think if you're developing those strong relationships with key stakeholders, uh, and especially senior management and the, and the senior sponsor, then hopefully you can develop that trust to be able to, to challenge things in a, in a sort of in a way that won't entrench attitudes and, and get organisations driving on with things because they've got a, an unconscious bias uh, or whatever it may be. Uh, so I think that's really important to, to build up that trust so that as the programme manager, you, you can sit down with the sponsor and say, are we going in the right direction? And then if, if, if a project within a programme is looking like it's doomed and it's not going to realise the, the benefits that were planned, then it's far better to to actually realise that early and to, to stop working on something than plough ahead for the wrong reasons. Then you can sort of take a pause, look at the overall programme benefits, see how a particular project that's not working might impact on that. Uh, and then go again, hopefully, with the, the right focus on the right benefits. Yeah, and I think I think that's the exact thing in terms of even if it might start out okay, you still have to have those regular review points uh, because sometimes what can happen is the scope can change dramatically and it's like, does that still tie, tie up to having a successful project where people still get what they want at the end of it? I've you know, come across situations like that before where the project starts off the outcome is we need to automate everything and then the scopes gets reduced and it's sort of not always, it's then accepted to do manual changes. So it's, it's regular communication, I think, and making sure that the, the benefits, they're still going to get what they want from it. Otherwise it can be doomed. To your point, James, about, you know, projects doomed from the start, I think that's sort of the, the key thing, you know, the, you know, the ownership, as you mentioned, like, sponsor where I've seen it work really well in organizations was um, I worked on a company site once where they actually did um, coaching for the sponsors so that the sponsor knew what was expected of them and you know it was amazing how you know by dealing with some of these human factors of like people are understanding what their you know what the role is and how they can help and how they can lead it can make a big difference I think which is probably why you know all those human factors in terms of insufficient leadership and support and lack of understanding the purpose it's getting those agreed up front at the start I don't know about you but sometimes you find that you know don't always have the kick off a project you know they tend to celebrate at the end but they don't bring everybody together at the beginning and sometimes I think that could be even more important because it's then at least then everybody knows exactly who the different stakeholders are and making sure that everyone understands what the purpose is because it's getting that buy-in 
And I think sometimes people forget, don't they, about employee engagement and without that buy-in, it's not going to help make the project successful. So, John, you've turned around a number of departments, project departments in organisations. Talk to us about some of the challenges that you've encountered in doing that. Well, I think the major challenge is sustainability, quite honestly. I, um, I, I've never been successful without having one of the executive believing this should, this should be done and convincing the others to do it. But that doesn't often last beyond that executive staying or, or those executive moving on. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it's very hard to institutionalize this stuff, I guess. I think executives seem to think, any executive that comes on think that well, they need to make a difference. They need to change the way things were doing. <clears throat> they don't understand enough about it that they're gonna do it their way. So I think I've been, I've been successful where I have access to the executive and, and I'm back to my program concept. I would, I would never take on a program without discussing with the executive why they want to do it and getting them behind it and understanding what it involves. But executives change and executives always want to put their mark on things. And pardon, pardon, not your name, Mark, but they, they wanted to you know, put their stamp on it. And sometimes their stamp on it is a kick in the debt. You know, it's, a, it's kicking the thing into penalty zone. They just don't get it. So I think one of the things we need to do is, is we can't keep relying on individuals to do this. We've got to some way find a way of institutionalizing it. And, and years ago, I used to run a course with a colleague of mine in Australia, <clears throat> a one-week course for business executives on this topic. <laughs> and they would come and it taught them all this stuff and they and, and some of them got it and got it but but most of them don't want to go on courses and you know so then I talk to the business school and say why don't you teach this well there's no demand for it so what basically the executives don't know what they don't know and somehow we need to create some comfort level where they realize they need to know this and some vehicle for them to get to understand it and support to do it Otherwise, it's going to rely on people like us individually in individual situations forever. And that's not very successful. Of course, speaking as a project management professional association, uh, we feel we have a duty to get the message out there to start to say, these are some of the challenges that you may face. Can you talk a little bit about where we go from here, what we're going to do with this series and uh, what, how people can get involved? Sure. Well, we don't think we've got all the answers, so we want your involvement. We need to involve more people. We want to understand what organisations currently do and what issues organisations identify and what are your ideas for overcoming them. We have a, a five-stage process. This is the Raising Awareness, which is a series of vlogs and blogs and other push-type conversations which we hope will get you to want to be part of this and to get involved. The next stage will be engaging our audience, which will be live events where you can feedback directly. You've frozen that Hugo. time. We will be learning as we go because we will have both a quantitative survey of current practice and semi-structured interviews. I'd just like to follow up with that and, and say, if you or your company would like to be involved in the semi-structured interviews, please do email me at the email address below. I, I think it would be key to, pick, to speak to, um, to involve decision makers and people who actually want to uh, be part of a, a change pro process. Um, as I say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. There's a, there's a need for people to want to change. I mean, there's no point in turning up, listening, and then going away and doing nothing. 
um, we're in a situation where we've got access to some people that can can help. And um, so if you're a, a sponsor, um, if you're a program director, if you're a program manager, if you're a lead in a, a PMO, um, there's every chance that, that you can have a big part in, uh, in, in making things better. So I think it'd be really great if you'd uh, reach out and, uh, and get involved.